0: Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie slash wondery. Hey everyone, welcome to a special interview episode of the Engadget podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. This week, we've been covering the Virtual Sundance Film Festival, which you can hear more about on the main episode of the podcast. But I want to take some time to chat with some really interesting directors. So I recorded conversations with Natalia Almada, the director of Users, which is a fascinating. It's a documentary, but it's also sort of like a meditation on modern life and parenting in the digital age. It's a fascinating film, and I just really want to dive into how she constructed it. I don't believe there's an official release date yet, but uh, we will update you as we hear more. I also talked with Rodney Asher, who directed A Glitch in the Matrix, which is a film that's about simulation theory and why a lot of people believe we're living in a simulation. And... He's a really fascinating guy. He's directed films like Room 237, which is all about people who have extreme theories about uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. He directed The Nightmare, which is about sleep paralysis and the sheer terror that people go through facing that. So this feels like similar territory for him. And we had a great conversation about, you know, his thoughts on simulation theory and why people believe this. So stick around for both of those conversations. As always, if you're digging the Engadget podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcaster of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes, and uh, you can email us at podcastengadget.com. Let us know if you like these interview episodes, because I would certainly like to do more of them. So let's begin with my discussion with Natalia Almada, the Director of Users. (laughs) Natalia Almada, thank you so much for joining us on the Engadget podcast, and I really want to talk to you about Users, which is the first film I saw from Sundance this year, and it kind of left me with a lasting impression. Can you just tell us briefly, you know, how do you describe Users? It's not quite just a documentary, I'd say. Uh,
1: well, thank you for having me. And, um, you know, I think as a filmmaker, one of my kind of fantasies is that people will come into the film with as knowing as little as possible and a kind of open mind, so... <laughs> I'm always really bad about these. Like, how do you describe the film? But I think it's a kind of interesting mix of a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of fiction, and a little bit of documentary all together. And it's a film that uh, looks at our intimate relationship with technology and kind of how uh, it changes our way of being and affects our environment and really shapes who we are and kind of thinking about the choices that we make. Can you tell me
0: just, I guess, what was the impetus for you to start uh, exploring something like this too? Because we've seen a lot of commentary around how we live with tech now i think black mirror has been the big one for a while and a lot of that just feels like tech is evil tech is very dangerous you know but i it almost feels like you're taking a more meditative approach to what's happening
1: definitely so the interest of the film is is and is to create that kind of space for contemplation Mm -hmm. and meditation around this kind of intimate relationship we have with technology and what i mean by that is that you as a viewer could think about your kind of own relationship to technology within the, the construct of the film so that it, your experience of it is intimate. And for me, this started because I'm, I'm kind of new to San Francisco, not so much now, but mm-hmm. I've been here maybe seven years or so. And <laughs> <laughs> I still feel new to here. In my mind, there's a part uh-huh. of me that's in Mexico City. And um, I uh, I have two little babies. They're, they're now two and four, so not babies anymore, mm-hmm. but just being here and then kind of making decisions around how to raise my kids in, in relation to technology. Like, do you send them to a school that has screens or that's one of these kind of screen-free Waldorf schools, or do you use the smart Mm -hmm. crib or uh, do you expose them to screens or do you not use the screens? Like all those kind of banal decisions that you have to make as a parent. As a filmmaker, I think that my, my kind of gut was to, analyze them and think about them more profoundly and kind of contemplate what they meant on a more philosophical, existential level.
0: For sure. And I think one thing that struck me about this movie, um, I think one of your first shots is, is it your child in the Snoo being rocked to sleep? And I actually was testing out the Snoo a couple years ago, too, when my daughter was, you know, a newborn. So I have that exact experience. And there's this sort of weird thing where you know, your child, your precious baby, um, which seems like a miracle, right? Just the fact that things are so modern now. And I, I do feel the act of uh, childbirth and having a child is just such a fundamentally strange thing. If you haven't gone through it, um, because we've been doing this for, you know, tens of thousands of years, you're putting your child in this modern crib. Um, Something about that just felt weird to me. I didn't feel right strapping my daughter into that. She never ended up liking it. It seems like your son did a better job of uh, actually falling to sleep with it. But how did you feel just using the snoo and gadgets like that?
1: Um, well, I, I with the smart crib, we didn't. I didn't keep one and use it.
0: Uh. <laughs> you just had it there. Well,
1: well, I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't know
1: how else to put it. But I think what's <laughs> interesting about it is that, you know, there've always been kind of stuff to help you with your kids, right? So mm-hmm. is it that different from some of the other kind of Fisher Price mechanical swings or whatever? you know, hammocks. like Which are, by the
0: way, most, most of those swings, by the way, now are have been recalled because they're incredibly <laughs> dangerous and they kids have been suffocating in them. So it's like, it is terrifying the technology that can both help you or kill your child. <laughs> but, it's hard to be a parent right yeah, now. Yeah, that wasn't
1: really what I meant to say. What I meant yeah, is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. always kind of creating things because this time of parenting is difficult, right? You have this little baby yeah. and everybody's tired and nobody's sleeping and you don't know what to do. So we appreciate having anything that might help us. Right. It's a, it's a very Mm -hmm. instinctual thing to say like, oh, wow. If there's a crib that helps my baby sleep and allows me to get some sleep, that is going to be good for everybody.
2: And and there's a lot of
1: truth to that. Um, But I think, so what I think is interesting about the smart crib though, is that somehow it it allowed me to fantasize. Right. So you're at that Mm -hmm. early parent with a little baby and you're like, you don't, you're full of insecurity. Like, am I doing this right? Did I Right. And that insecurity is what makes you want support, whether it's technology or a grandma. Right. You want somebody mm-hmm. or something
2: right. that's going
1: to help you parent and help you do it right. And so much of our technology is built out of that desire and that kind of insecurity in our and how flawed we are as people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's amazing that it exists. And I, as a filmmaker, filmmaker, I use it as an object on which to fantasize, I think. And I think it's easy to look at that crib and that baby in there and just let your mind go. And yeah. that's not a criticism of the smart crib. That's more about how we are able to then imagine like, what if my baby loved that crib more than me? What if mm-hmm. right, my baby's sense of comfort became attached to a machine instead of to a person? So I think it's it's that space that it allows that I'm interested in, right? So how can we think of you know, in more serious ways, also the kind of unintended consequences of some of the Mm -hmm. things that we develop and, and how also can we hold that duality that it's amazing that we can imagine things that we can build them and that we can use them. It's amazing. And it's one of the, the wonders of mankind in a way, it's our ability to do that. Yet, how Mm -hmm. do we hold that in balance with unintended consequences that, that, how do we have that kind of humility in a sense to know that there will be unintended consequences?
0: For sure. Right. Yeah, this is it almost seems like you've taken the anxiety of being a new parent uh, today and kind of captured it on screen because there are all these things. Uh, my parents don't know about all these smart devices. Right. right. And I think traditionally you would go back and be like, how do I burp my child? You know, right. How do I put the baby to sleep? The older generation can't help us now. We're kind of embarking on uncharted territory here. Uh, one thing I really appreciate about this film is that you do a great job of juxtaposing the natural world versus the technological, the modern world. And it just seems like you're really trying to make us aware of the fact that, hey, the natural world is still here. It, it, it exists, even though we're so wrapped up in our lives these days. It kind of reminded me of the um, of like Koyaanisqatsi and those types of films. Is that part of what you were going for?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in different regards. So I think mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit of a natural opposition to put the nature against technology, because they, they mm-hmm. feel like they're on opposite sides of the pendulum. And yet, they're in constant play with each other. Right. And and for me, it was super interesting to think about something like this incredible uh, vertical farm. My, my father was mm-hmm. in agriculture. So and I'm from an agriculture place mm-hmm. in Mexico. And so I always think of the the land and and irrigation systems and 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 what that has always been and to think suddenly I was able again to like fantasize and think like it's amazing that they can grow mm-hmm. food inside like that and thank God they can because we might need that right we do need that how are we going to we do, need, we that, do yeah. need that so so it's a ama- it's incredible it's incredible and then at the same time to think well what does that mean for my kids and and Will they know the farms that I knew? Will they know the taste of food that was grown that way? Or will they never experience that? Or will they forget, you know, because in 20 years they won't remember those <laughs> those tastes. And I think that, that that's kind of what what piques my interest in a way, or where mm-hmm. I want the film to live is for you to be kind of in that constant ambiguous space. Um, and in terms of the Koine Scotsi reference, I definitely was interested in, in making a film that can exist on that epic scale. Mm-hmm. And both in terms of how it's shot, but also in terms of what it's talking about. And for me, this was also important because it's not something that is usually done by women directors, right? So we think of a lot of those big films are, are often men. And I thought, well, how can I also incorporate into that epicness the domestic, which is traditionally not in that space
0: gotcha i think that's part of what yeah also struck me about it too cuz it's it is about a thing that a lot of people have to deal with is having a new child and I feel like until you go through that that experience, um, it is hard to grasp. You can read many books, you can watch movies about it, but going through that life experience is really unique and unusual. Um, I want to talk a bit about you start delving into the climate change into climate change in the film uh, once you start uh, showing footage of the California wildfires and things like that. Um, how much at that point, the movie started to seem like, oh, this is more of a reflection about just where we are today, right? Everything is so uncertain in our modern society. It's not even just technology. It's the fact that the modern world is still, uh, we are reshaping the world in many different ways. Can you relate to that? Um, how are yeah. How are you thinking of climate change when it comes to the fact that we're also just so hyper technological at this point too? And I had one question, uh, during that whole sequence that there was footage of you i think you in a truck uh driving through you know the wildfires um was that something you guys actually shot or is that footage from somewhere else because it seemed incredibly dangerous
1: yeah um well also also, oh that's a few lot of questions
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: so let me begin with um we first you know it's here in san francisco when uh the the fire in paradise happened and all i could you know we were really affected by the smoke in san francisco Mm -hmm. and it was a kind of Bizarre feeling like you're very aware of the fire, but I'd never been to paradise, you know um, So I was thinking a lot about how it was kind of this fight between nature and technology in Mm -hmm. a way and Nobody won Right nature didn't really win (laughs) It was more powerful and it destroyed people's homes Mm -hmm. and everything but And yet we have all this amazing technology and yet we couldn't prevent that from happening so for me, it was this like battleground, right? In which there is no winner and how frustrating that is and how devastating and sad. And so we went and shot there. Um, mm-hmm. And I kept trying to work the footage. You know we we happened upon when we were there, this man who helps people find cremains. So the, the ashes of their relatives that they might've had in their house that got burned down. Mm-hmm. So it's like really the ashes mm-hmm. within the ashes. Um, and their best technology to do that is are still dogs, yeah. um, which was fascinating. And as we were cutting the film, it just felt like we couldn't really have that scene without really seeing the fire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when the fires just recently, the last season of fires um, happened, we uh, we worked with Noah Berger who's a a still photographer. Who's been shooting the fires and he helped us get into the fires safely. Huh. Like we had our fire gear and our, you know, our helmets and our <laughs> fire tent <laughs> and rented a four by four. And um, yeah, so in that shot in particular, driving through the fire was not exactly planned. Um, the mm-hmm. fire kind of started to really ignite around us, and Noah wanted to shoot some houses that were starting to catch on fire. And as we turned around to go up, it just, the wind blew and the fire just yeah went.
0: That, um, that seems particularly harrowing too. Like I was, I was worried that you guys were trying to escape from your house as no. it was burning down or something, but this is purposefully planned and filmed. It looks, I just have to say that footage looks incredible. And you, you've, you've captured many beautiful shots in the film. Can you talk about just the filmmaking aspect of it too? Um, just in terms of, how you capture a lot of these scenes. There's a lot of drone footage from what I can see, but they're just like seemingly um, small shots. Like there's a point where you're focusing on power cables, I think uh, on a highway and the camera just pans down to a truck. And that kind of, it kind of struck me in a way because I didn't expect the truck to be there. It seemed like this beautiful shot of, um, of just yeah, we have power lines everywhere right now. And then all of a sudden you're, contra- you're confronted by this giant truck. Uh, can you just tell us like, what what was involved with capturing these images?
1: Uh, well, it's the the fun part of making the film in a lot of ways is that there's so many different situations that we were filming in that require different mm-hmm. approaches. And I find that was really exciting from a creative standpoint. And my cinematographer, uh, Bennett Surf is my brother-in-law. Um, he's an amazing uh, DP for rigging and moving the camera. And he also has a drone company. <laughs> Okay. So He's not just your any, any drone pilot. He's like, really that probably helps. Young. Yeah, and he's just a fantastic <laughs> pilot. So whenever we were doing drone shots, you know, I look at a lot of documentaries and I, and I wanted to do something different with the drone. Like, how could we, you know, how could you look at it and not say like, Oh, here comes another drone shot, but feel mm-hmm. something different mm-hmm. or play with your sense of um, the film is kind of always moving you. In space, like are you under the water? Are you over? Are you close? Are you far? And kind of disorienting you a bit. Uh, so we were thinking a lot about how to use the the vantage point of the drone in that space and to abstract nature when we needed to, or or things like that. But never as kind of like, and here's your establishing shot of <laughs> the city or whatever.
0: Yeah. Um, in in like a, the highest angle possible that only drones can make happen right now yeah. I'm just wondering like just given the subject matter of this film too, how do you feel about using drone photography? Because that's literally technology that's come from warfare, you know, and now we can use it. We can play around with it at home. We can create art from it. And I think there's a lot of value there, but yeah, that is a brand new, very new thing, basically within the last 10 years that more filmmakers are using. How are you thinking of that as a tool? And also I know the anxieties of it as a very modern something defend descended from warfare.
1: Uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to answer your question. I think as a documentary yeah. filmmaker, I'm, you know, I'm always thinking about what is the perspective of the camera, and what is the relationship between the camera and the subject, and I, the filmmaker, and the subject, like in that triangle. And so, the the issue with the drone often is that it has none. Right? It is never where we see the world from, unless we're in a helicopter, right. or an airplane, or parachuting. So, <laughs> um, so you lose something that is so rich and necessary and essential about filmmaking and especially documentary filmmaking if you're looking for that kind of connection to to others or to a place. Um, so I think that was what I was worried about. I think what you're talking about in terms of drone photography coming out mm-hmm. of a kind of military use um, I think, you know, I saw there's a great film called uh, Light, uh, Always Light Everywhere, Light Everywhere I'm getting, All Light Everywhere, all everywhere, light everywhere yeah. that kind of looks at the history of Um, how we make images and how we do surveillance. And, you know, I think we'd be hard pressed to look at any filmmaking technology, (laughs) Mm -hmm. even photography and really divorce it from that kind of use, or even look at something like, you know, the internet was developed by the department of defense. Like, Mm -hmm. there's always been a weird relationship between um, government, military technology usage <laughs> in filmmaking and in the internet and everything yeah. we do so so I just think it's it's important to know about it and think about it but
0: one one aspect of this film that really struck me too is I was listening to it uh, on headphones late at night um, the sound design felt very heightened in a way that I don't normally feel most documentaries really pay attention to I know you worked with Dolby for both processing Dolby vision and Dolby Atmos audio that that wasn't actually in the version I saw but I could tell the sound design just felt like you paid a lot of attention to that. Um, Can you talk about how you use sound as a tool to really immerse us?
1: Yeah. So my, my partner, Dave surf is the sound designer and composer of the film and the film is really, you know, we, we work really closely together and he would build the soundscapes and the music as I was shooting. And so we'd kind Mm -hmm. of be editing and doing sound design from the very beginning throughout the whole process. So it's a super organic part of the film. And it's also conceptually holding all the ideas in the film as well. So we were always talking about that kind of, when does the sound feel natural and human? When does it feel artificial? When does it feel intimate? When does it feel epic? Um, And then we were really fortunate to get to work with the Kronos Quartet and they performed the score that Dave uh, composed. And it was just amazing because we had the money from Dolby and we mm-hmm. knew we were going to do an Atmos mix. And so we recorded Kronos in Atmos so that once we were in the mix, you could really play with, for example, every take has 19 mics
0: uh-huh. <laughs> right? wow. and
1: you can then position <laughs> in the room and decide, well, I'm going to take that intimate sound of a mic that's really close to an instrument, but I'm going to put it in the ceiling or I'm going to put it all around you and make it feel kind of mm-hmm. intimate, but big, <laughs>
0: Gotcha. I'm looking forward to checking that out because I've been exploring Atmos tech for a while. So I want to hear that full final version of the film at some point. Um, I guess my final question for you is just that uh, this is a film that does a great job of uh, bringing up a lot of anxieties. I already have and I think a lot of people have about modern life. But <laughs> over the past year, things have gotten kind of even worse for us. Um have you thought about like, if you had the chance to go back and maybe just add an addendum to this film, would you include any pandemic stuff? Or do you have thoughts about how that relates to yeah. what you're exploring yeah. with users?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I uh, we just finished the film, so I'm not ready to yeah, add anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, what I have thought about a lot in relation to the pandemic is that we started the film before the pandemic. Yep. And obviously nobody saw this coming. So what I find right now is that the pandemic has pretty radically shifted each of our relationship to technology, right? So I'd be hard pressed to Mm -hmm. think of anybody who's not saying like, you know, either like, thank God we have zoom and I can talk to grandma or uh, stay, go to school or work, have a job, you know, but it's keeping us safer and not even just the things we think about maybe every day, like zoom, but I feel like generally speaking, we've all, there's been a collective faith, for example, that a vaccine would be developed,
0: right? Right. right. Or my
1: partner, Dave, always says, um, at least we know what a virus is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? If this had happened- yeah.
0: It could always be worse. Yeah, yeah. and if yeah, this had happened in, in the
1: past, we wouldn't even have known it was a virus, mm-hmm. right? So that's all technology, mm-hmm. right? And I think that what's, um, what's interesting right now or what I kind of hope is that- um, A viewer coming to the film now can use the kind of space within the film to contemplate, but is actually has a lot to relate to, (laughs) right? It's not a film about something way out there, over there that doesn't affect them, but it's something that we're all really experiencing in different ways, right? It might not be, you know, if you choose to have IVF or, um, you know, if your drinking water isn't being recycled from like the toilet to tap, recycling. Mm -hmm. But in one way or another, we're all kind of really grappling with these questions. And I think we're also living through a time where we really have a great appreciation for what technology is giving us. Um, And also we're experiencing what it doesn't give us. So we may all be really happy. We can stay connected a little bit. Right. But we're also saying like, I really want to hug somebody. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. it. Like those two holding those two contradictory ideas together, I think is, is a lot of what the film is trying to do.
0: Gotcha. So the past year made you appreciate more, I guess, the things that we're missing. It is, seems like the idea that you've been hinting at in the film in a way is that, Hey, we should be aware of the natural world at the same time as we're our lives are easier and more efficient and more convenient. Um, what have you missed over the past year? I guess is my ultimate question for you.
1: I mean, uh, <laughs> For me personally, I think yeah. I would say it's, I would tell, say two things I've really missed and what I've been really grateful for. So mm-hmm. I have a f- uh, two little kids who are learning to swim and we can't take them swimming. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's been a big thing for yeah. a lot of reasons. But that time with them in the water and and them learning to swim, not being able to go to the pool has just felt like a big loss and made me think mm-hmm. of other similar things. But that's where I feel it. Um, and then I, I have had a kind of bi-national life. I have a home in Mexico and my collaborators and my family and friends are in Mexico City. So just to mm-hmm. feel like I can't be there and don't know yeah. when I can be there and that they're going through something similar but different than we are, that has been hard to feel like. And I think about it a little bit politically, the kind of I've always felt freedom to go back and forth And for the first time, I don't have that freedom. And it also has made me see what so many people who don't have the, you know, who either don't have papers and are immigrants and can't go back home or they're refugees or in exile, that feeling of not being able to go home and kind of how painful that is, is for me kind of the first time I have felt it like that for very different reasons. But it's made me kind of understand in a different way what that might feel Mm -hmm. like.
0: Mm mm-hmm. um, Do you? Yeah, do, I'm just wondering, just based on everything that's gone on over the past year, and just what you've already been working on in this film, I almost feel like there is sort of like sequel ideas or potentials for you. Are there ideas you'd love to explore in the future, either with other films or similar films to this?
1: You know, it's funny, because usually I finish a film, and I'm just like, I'm done.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: I'm done. And it, mm-hmm. the other day, I think it might have even been the day we sent our deliverables to Sundance, I uh, was listening to NPR and it was, or maybe a couple of days later, but there's these big storms. And there was a, so they were talking about the floods and all the people having to evacuate because they were worried about the landslide landslides, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in Santa Cruz. Yeah. And, um, and my feeling was like, I just want to go shoot it. I want to shoot the storm. I want to, and I think there's something about this film that just feels like, it could keep growing and going. And and then there are a couple things that we weren't able to film either because of the pandemic or because we couldn't get mm-hmm. access fast enough or, or maybe we'd never get it. But mm-hmm. there are a few things that I like we were going to film in a Google data center that was huge. This was supposed to be in April. So. It just couldn't happen because the yeah. pandemic and
0: just too yeah. tough. I, I would love to see this turn into a series like the Scottsy series, basically like uh, You certainly have a lot of material to work with.
1: Yeah, it's, and I have an amazing team. I think that's been the best yeah. thing for me is to work with my producers. And we have these incredible funders that have given us so much freedom and allowed us to really explore and do what we think we need to do to kind of realize a vision and, and Dave and Bennett and Olivia, my, kind of researcher and co-producer. They've, they've just been an incredible team. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Natalia. I just have to ask, and we ask this for everybody, where can we find more of your work online? Where can people follow you if they're into the film and want to see what you have coming next?
1: So I will confess, I think my my weakness as a filmmaker has always been this... <laughs> distribution side of things <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: and and so my films are kind of all over spread around they've my documentaries have all been on pov on pbs mm-hmm. so that is one way to find them i have a website which is altamura a-l-t-a-m-u-r-a films.com and that has kind of my film filmography on it um so maybe that that leads me towards something <laughs>
0: I would recommend Twitter, even though it's been a messy service. But as somebody who loves film, it is fun to see and interact with other creators as well. But yeah, thank you so much, Natalia. Thank
1: you. And thanks for having having me. Let's
0: move on to my discussion with Rodney Asher, the director of A Glitch in the Matrix. <laughs> Rodney Asher, thank you so much for joining us on the Engadget podcast. My first question for you: Do you think we live in a simulation?
2: Oh, I've got no idea, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> and you know, a lot of the science behind it, you know, to um, you know, to get into it, some of it's you know a little beyond me. I don't have um, a master's in um, in physics or anything, but um, for me, I'm, I mostly think about simulation theory. You know, I guess in my personal life, you know, as sort of a metaphor, thinking about you know, the realities that we construct, um, you know, for ourselves and at a certain point, I mean, even trying to um, poke a finger at, you know, are we living in a simulation, you know, I think it raises that you start to, you know, obsess over the definition of every word in the sentence, not the least of which is simulation, right? If this is the only world we know, you know, it may be a simulation by the standards of whoever created it for whatever purpose, but by our standards, this is reality. This is, you know, whether the, you know, whether the um, smallest component of it is zeros and ones instead of chemical reactions. Um, this is still, you know, the water I'm swimming in.
0: Right. And our, our moral, you know, philosophies and everything still, still adhere. You know, nothing has changed no matter what's happening externally, right?
2: Yeah, well, and that's one of the big questions of the movie. And to tell you the truth, something was a little surprised to me about how mm-hmm. deeply people um, wanted to explore the, the ethics and the morality of living in a simulation. But, yeah, at, at points, you know, folks really sort of come to talk about those questions uh, head on.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that. This is a huge topic. And we've seen, you know, a lot of people talk about this idea. I, I think in Gadget, we've covered, you know, Elon Musk, where he's brought it up several times. And he's also worried about killer AI and basically everything every sci fi fan is really into at this point. So sure. um, how did you go about breaking down this topic? Because it seems like a bear to really get a handle on, especially for a single documentary.
2: Well, at a certain point, you know, I had to realize that I was not going to be able to write the sort of um, authoritative encyclopedia or even Wikipedia account Mm -hmm. of simulation theory and get (laughs) every milestone and every corner, uh, every, you know, corner of study devoted to the topic. You know, I had a gigantic, you know, conspiracy theory style whiteboard that with listings of everything I found interesting about the idea. But, you know, at a certain point, you know, I made peace with the fact that, you know, what I really wanted to focus on were the human stories were you know, the four characters that, you know, we see via those avatars. And well, you know, I might have liked to have spent some time talking about um, Borgia's exactitude in science or quantum entanglement Mm -hmm. um, or, or something along those lines. But (laughs) what no article that I've ever read about simulation theory covers, you know, is the story of, um, of Alex in the back of that pickup truck driving around the um, corner of a Mexican pyramid, you know, in mm-hmm. the way that he felt, you know, as things started to swerve out of control. <laughs> that was a
0: yeah, that's a really fun part of the film too. I I was really wondering like how did you end up finding these folks and why you know you focused on a p- couple people who, to me, they just seem like normal folks, you know, normal people who maybe are into tech and have this uh, philosophy, but they're not, you know, they're not business people they're not major world leaders or anything it's just they're normal people why did you choose these people
2: well because you know on the one hand because the fact that they're normal people they're relatable Mm -hmm. um but also they were people who reached out to us right at a certain point we announced that we were making the movie and boing boing did a Mm -hmm. boing boing did a little write-up on it and we set up a place Mm -hmm. online where people could reach us and based on you know what folks wrote to us the stories that i found the most compelling, the most representative, you know, the most off the wall, the most um, harrowing were the ones that were, were the ones that we covered, you know. So you know, at the end of the day, there's you know, a little bit of there's a little bit of summary for people who are coming into this idea out of the cold. But the meat of it, you know, are these sort of deeply personal you know, human stories, as well as giving these people you know, sort of the time to reflect on on what it means to them.
0: And um, I saw a bit like I think early on you had a m- montage sequence that included George Hotz's talk about simulation theory from South by. I think like two or three years ago. I was actually sitting in the audience there. Oh and that wow! Was a, that was a pretty wild thing to sit through because George Hotz, aka Geo Hotz, right, is one of the original iPhone hackers. He's a guy who's known for jailbreaking Apple software, and his whole talk was right was about jailbreaking our simulation. Um, did you, did you like, is that something you want to include more of, or I w- would have even loved to see you chat with him about his, like he's more extreme than a lot of these other folks you've been talking to.
2: Yeah. Well, again, I, what I decided to focus on more or less regular people. And, mm-hmm. and, and often they had these, you know, sort of unusual, I, I don't know how I would call it origin stories, but they go <laughs> through something that, yeah. um, that leaves them feeling, um, would leave, that leaves some of the belief in simulation theory, and the more I read about those stories and the more I talked to those folks, um, the more I wanted to to focus on them. Um, you know, I don't know where else I would find someone to talk about, like the way Paul mentions that backyard barbecue with his uncle. You know, mm-hmm. who said if none of this is real, was to keep me from going on a shooting spree or shooting you and yeah. there's a moment it's interesting i've you know talked to a, a fair amount of people after they've seen the movie and that one really kind of resonates as um, as sort of a a relatable and also kind of a, a frightening moment and when we talk about mm-hmm. you know sort of the ethical ramifications of simulation theory right we think there's that um, you know kind of hierarchy of of moral development and not doing something because you are afraid of being punished is pretty low in, in the hierarchy, but that's, you know, where you would be to think that since none of this matters, um, I may as well, um, you know, shoot my next door neighbor while he's mowing on the lawn, while he's mowing the lawn.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a little disconcerting. And I think especially disconcerting this year, you know, after we've lived through a year of a pandemic and of People making I guess questionable decisions about how they will take care of their neighbors, and I don't know I, I think all of a sudden society seemed a little more selfish than I initially wanted to believe um did like I'm sure a lot of this film was done before the pandemic times, but was there anything you know post pandemic that you would have wanted to include that you came across
2: well there's a ton, and you know actually there's only one moment in the film that directly mm-hmm. references the pandemic, and that's when you know Jesse is Talking about is, is sort of comparing and contrasting life, you know, game life and real life, mm-hmm. and how, you know, he's played one game after another that have shipped before they were ready, and that they were full of bugs and glitches, and sometimes they were downright unplayable. Cut to, he puts the game away and looks around at the real world, and it is similarly glitchy <laughs> and buggy, and in some ways unplayable. And, you know, maybe a funny, halfway funny thing about, you know, that moment is you know over the course of the film i kept swapping out what the scene was that illustrated our world malfunctioning and mm-hmm. you know we were in the high, i and you know so and you know we put the movie to bed in august of 2020 although mm-hmm. you know the bulk of the work was done the interviews were done in 2019 and the interview in the in the edit was getting fairly close by the end of the year and the first by april the structure of it was basically locked with, you know, fine tuning happening to the animation mm-hmm. and things. But, you know, every month or week or even day at some point, the question of what insane, um, surprising, <laughs> illogical glitch from our world would best illustrate that moment, you know, a, a new one has presented itself. And no doubt there will be new ones happening, um, you know, in the weeks and months and in, in, in years ahead.
0: Gotcha. And one of the subjects, I won't spoil too much here for people who haven't seen the movie, but one of the subjects you end up talking to is somebody who takes their idea of their their belief that we live in simulation to the point where it's deadly. And I don't know if it's a big spoiler because this person was actually in the news and the, the name kind of reminded me of that. But how did you get in touch with them? And it, the movie does take kind of a chilling turn when you get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm sure that's like a very purposeful thing that you're doing. Um is this like, a, I'm wondering what was the intrigue there for you? Because it is kind of scary that people who believe this almost seem like they could be on the verge of like, yeah, shooting their neighbors, I guess.
2: Yeah, well, there are, you know, there are a couple of things. One of them was once I read about the Matrix defense, right, being mm-hmm. used as a sort of version of the insanity defense in yeah. criminal trials, you know, that was something on my big board that I thought I wanted to talk to, I wanted to talk about, and not just having a legal professor kind of explain it again in a Wikipedia sort of a way, but the uh, the experience of somebody you know who who was there, somebody who lived it, and it was actually um, you know our producers over at uh, Campfire um, Colin and Rebecca who found Josh Cook and reached out, and since he's like he he's, he's just published a book and he's you know sort of trying to you know reach out to let's say troubled kids so that they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, make some of the same mistakes that he do that he did. You know, he was he was happy to share his story, and you know, I really liked including it in a way because I mean, if you think of the structure of the movie, the first half, the first maybe the first sixty percent, a lot of it is fairly abstract. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about it as I wonder if and yeah. well, what would that mean? Yeah. Um, and even if people are telling these true stories, a lot of them the stakes are fairly low, right? A kid is riding in the back of his father's car is riding in his father's car, wondering whether they're just looking at a movie screen through the windshield. You know, it's a a small personal moment, but it's not earth shattering, right?
0: Right. But right.
2: Josh's story, you know, has got some real stakes. And although simulation theory is not the only type of philosophy that, you know, can lead to dangerous consequences, and it's not the only philosophy that mm-hmm. divides people into important people and the others, um, there's absolutely a danger, you know, when you start talking about, you know, alienation and derealization and um, depersonalization. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to, you know, get real in that portion. Cause, you know, we ta- again, you were talking about how in the last year or so, you've noticed that some of us have not been as generous to their neighbors as you would hope, as that you would hope or expect. And, you know, that's not exactly simulation theory, but it is, if you, you know, kind of looking at it metaphorically, a lot of that's based on, you know, the worlds that they've constructed in their heads. And, you know, which is also, you know, I think something that, you know, within the film, Emily Pottis talks about, you know, sort of people's media bubbles, comparing them to the understanding of reality that the um, figures in Plato's cave would have experienced. You know, and I think all of that stuff um Helps build simulation theory into, you know, a powerful metaphor for, you know, the way people are are understanding or misunderstanding, you know, the world we're living in.
0: For sure, for sure. I mean, as I was watching that sequence too, I just it felt to me like a microcosm of the mental apparatus that you know encouraged uh, a lot of people to go uh, try to take over the capital. You know, just a month ago, it does seem like it's online communities. It is, it is like these insular belief systems and conspiracy theories to be, to be frank. Um, Did you find like any relation between that? Because as you're exploring something like sim theory, and you're looking at a world where like, a large chunk of the American population is devoted to uh, crazy conspiracy theories, there seems like a clear line there to me, or at least a similarity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely a window to talk about that stuff through. And you know, I made a film a few years ago, Room 237, and about people who are struggling to understand um, um, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, right? And one of them talks about the conspiracy theory, and in some ways 2012 feels like a very different time in which yeah. conspiracy theory was sort of an interesting subculture, you know, but it, but you know, we've been witness to you know some of the darker possibilities that that come with people who spend too much time in it over the over over the past few years. And I think likewise, you know, simula- You know, you have to, you know, look at simulation. I think you have to look at simulation theory two ways. And knock on wood, I hope the film, you know, <laughs> tries to do that or tries to inspire the conversations of. There's the literal idea of it. Right, the 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 zeros and ones behind everything that's around us, but then there's the metaphor of um, of artificial worlds that are created, you know, by you know by who is the question, you know, created mm-hmm. by an accurate reflection of the world as we perceive it, by you know our own biases and um, and uh, media bubbles and um, peer groups. Um, you know, I think if there's one question, you know, that people might entertain and bat around after the movie, you know, maybe it's, you know, who built the world that I'm living in.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, thank you for bringing up room 237 too, because it kind of, I see a, a very like distinct through line between that film and the nightmare and this one too, like you're very interested in people who are maybe a little obsessed and have these, um, distinct views of reality, right? Like they have specific windows into reality that is very uh, unique to them and maybe something that not not everybody else can see. Uh, I'm just wondering, yeah, broadly, what is, what intrigues you about that and about documenting that?
2: It's hard to say. I mean, it might just be that they are, um, you know, versions of myself, right? I'm fairly obsessive in my ways. And (laughs) maybe I recognize maybe I recognize the fact that they are more interesting versions of, um, they're more—they're more interesting versions of me, or the rabbit holes that I seem to fall into. I mean, one way that I try to describe these projects, you know, is that they're attempts to let the audience see the world through someone else's eyes. And if the—and if you know these folks saw the world the way that quote-unquote most of us saw, well, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be a very interesting process.
0: I I hear that. Um, But I do wonder Mm -hmm. in covering this and working on this, is there any particular thing that kind of blew your mind or changed your worldview as you started talking to these
2: folks? Well, I found myself thinking more and more about the question of if we're in a simulation, what is the simulation for, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, some people talk about um, Nick Bostrom has that phrase, ancestor simulation, which to me suggested. Oh, that it's sort of a historical recreation of someone's past, you know, for some sort of educational route. But I mean, during COVID, you know, I sort of found myself a little freaked out looking at New York Times had an interactive um, little animation on their website, you know, when Mm -hmm. things were first really starting to spread. And it was a... um, like contagion simulator, right? There were bouncing blue and red balls inside of a little square and you would move little toggle switches around to that would affect the way that they interacted in the way that the contagion spread. And, you know, trying to imagine what life was like for those little balls, how unaware they were of who was pulling the strings into what end, you know, I found awfully disturbing. (laughs)
0: Oh boy, I yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, this past year has just been kind of a wild one when it comes to yeah, seeing I guess how the nature of reality kind of breaks a little um, when society is stressed. Um, my last question for you, Rodney, is um, what you know what obsessive subcommunity are you looking into next? What is really intriguing you that you'd like to unpack next?
2: Well, there's a a handful of different things I'm looking at, but um, what might be nice, uh, sort of a um a change of pace. Is w- 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 one of the things I'm looking at is is about humor theory. Mm. Interesting. Okay. In this, in this, in the semiotics of a joke, um, which could be you know, bl- a, 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 a sort, maybe sort of a, bless, a blissful respite from you know some of the the heaviness of the, <laughs> the these last couple projects.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to need as as much lightness as we can get over the next couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much, and good luck with the release of this film, uh, Rodney Asher. Where can people find your work on the internet? Uh, are you on Twitter? Is is there any good place for people to follow you?
2: Yeah, Twitter is probably the social media where I spend my, the, the the most time. Um, and this film is going to be, you know, it's finishing up its sun its virtual Sundance premiere mm-hmm. over the uh, over this week, and then on February fifth, it'll be. You know, on demand, which is Amazon, Apple, and you know maybe what's you know even even more exciting, what they call virtual cinema, that you can mm-hmm. check on the website of your local indie art house, and a lot of them are are, are participating with distributors in you know streaming brand new movies directly to. uh to your desktop
0: yeah that's a good call out i love the virtual cinema so yeah shout out to everybody check out your local your local indie theater because they are likely doing something like this uh rodney astro thank you so much for joining us
2: great to talk to you, davindra
0: that's it for this special interview episode of the gadget podcast uh you can typically find us recording the show live thursdays at 10 a.m eastern on our youtube channel so come check that out thanks folks we're out